But I'd argue if we look past these gender beliefs, we will see a greater range of abilities in all people. This is the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, sharing thought-provoking content and discussions to enhance your leadership development journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes. Here are your hosts from the digital learning team at Crottenville, GE's Global Learning Institute. Hello, everyone. We've got a really interesting episode for you today. I think I say that about all of them, but hey. For this episode, I spoke with Sangi Dekasturi, a diversity and inclusion expert who has worked around the world and has been featured in publications like Working Mother, Diversity MBA, and Forbes. We talked about inclusivity as it pertains to women's issues, but also specifically focused on inclusivity for men as part of that effort. Just like the chat we had with Deborah Streeter, it's always really hard to have a truly comprehensive discussion on these items because they are so multifaceted, but I hope you find the conversation interesting and helpful toward thinking about inclusiveness productively. So here it is. Enjoy. Welcome, Sangeeta. Thank you, Chantel. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us about your background and experience? Yeah, certainly. So I started my career as an engineer, and as you can imagine, that gave me a pretty interesting and early vantage point into the challenges for women in STEM fields. So after working in engineering and then morphing my career several times, I launched my own company, Action Inclusion, a few years ago, and uh, we help organizations build strategies around diversity and inclusion with a real focus on gender equality. And by gender equality, I mean for both women and men. And would you mind, is, is there any specific examples, just to give people an idea in case they're not sure what you're talking about with respect to the vantage point of, of women in STEM? Yeah, absolutely. I, I kind of thought that you might you might ask that. So as a woman in a predominantly male field, which the STEM fields, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics is what STEM stands for, as a, as a woman... I got asked some, you know, really interesting questions. You know, for example, one that came up a lot was, what's it like being a female engineer? And I have to tell you, until that point, it never occurred to me that there was anything different or anything unique about about what I did. Right. So when, yeah, so when people would ask, what's it like being a woman engineer? My answer really was, I have absolutely no idea because I'm not walking around thinking of myself as a as a woman engineer i'm you know just thinking of myself as an engineer that said though i i did find and i think i took for granted that uh there really was this need to i had to prove myself over and over and over again so there was less of a reliance on what went well before and sort of riding on your laurels and more of a need to whenever I encountered a new group of people to have to prove all over again that I was technical and I was competent. Uh, interestingly, I didn't mind it at, at the time. I just thought that was the way you you did and that's, you know, what you did at work. Uh, in retrospect, though, you know, you shouldn't have to do that. You shouldn't have to keep proving yourself over and over again. And that's what got me really interested in this idea of gender equality, because I didn't necessarily see the men uh, having to go through those same challenges. That's interesting. Do you see inclusivity of women as a global issue? I do, absolutely. So women all around the world 
are underrepresented in leadership positions across the board, whether you're talking about corporations or government or academics. So, you know, even in predominantly female fields like elementary education or nonprofits, which are highly staffed by women, the top leadership seats are still occupied by men. And by the way, female elementary school teachers earn less than male elementary school teachers, too. So there's also this issue of the wage gap across most professions, even ones that are predominantly female. So what we're also seeing is this gender cliff. Even if you have gender equality at certain levels of the organization in terms of numbers, number of men, number of women, mm -hmm. the higher yeah, the higher up you go in an organization, the fewer women there are. Uh, in fact, in most companies, you can identify the job level or the cliff, the gender cliff, really, where women begin to drop off. Hmm. And so is there, have you come up with any reasoning as to why you think that might be that, that way? You know, that's a, that's a really big, big question, and I wish I had a single answer for it, but I don't think anyone does. What we're dealing with here is a really complex issue, and there is no one thing that will fix it. You really have to look at many variables, including cultural expectations of people based on gender. You know, the idea that men do certain things better than women and women do other things better than men. Unconscious bias. We really need to look at this from all angles, socially, organizationally, and individually. But I will tell you this, I think there's been one way in which we've been consistently getting it wrong, and that is that we try to change perceptions about women without really changing the way we think about men. So women represent more than half of the world's population, and you can't really make changes or impact that many people without affecting the other half, and that's where we've been falling down. Yeah, that's a great point. What does the way we perceive men have anything to do with with women's advancement? You know, that's a, that's a really good question, and I'll give you an example. So culturally, we believe that women are better with home and child care, and that's why those responsibilities still predominantly fall to women. So because of this belief, a lot of organizations don't offer paternity leave or parental leave, and if they do, you know, even if they do, it's usually not equivalent to maternity leave. So a heterosexual couple having a child may not have much of a choice in deciding who stays home. If there isn't enough leave for him, then it's she's the one who has to step off her career path. And when you have policies and procedures like, you know, maternity leave, no paternity leave, for example, and those procedures are reinforcing a bias. We call that structural bias. For gay couples, it's even harder. Right. Yeah, that's something that I don't think necessarily people think about. Um, you know, there are reasons people make choices a lot of the time, and it's not always just that it's their preference, right? If it's if it's harder because uh, from a societal structure point of view, like you said, uh, there's not as much support there. It's, it kind of makes sense that that's how it turns out most of the time. And, you know, that is how it turns out most of the time. That is, you know, actually a fact. And uh, we think that we're making a choice and don't necessarily realize how limited the choices that we're given actually are. Mm -hmm. And 
So broadening those choices for both men and for women really can have a huge impact uh, on the way women are represented in the workplace as well as the way men are represented in the home. And to that point, then, is there, just to address, is there unconscious bias against men as well? Well, just like there are unconscious biases about women's ability in top leadership positions, there is conscious and unconscious bias about men's abilities and willingness to be caregivers in the home. So, you know, men who choose to stay home don't get a whole lot of support for that choice even today. Or, you know, we may assume that work-life balance is a women's issue when, in fact, it's a family issue that affects both both genders. So I've talked to several stay-at-home dads who tell me that they're excluded from you know, school meetings, PTOs, and other groups. Oh, wow. And that they're, yeah, yeah. And um, they're looked at with some disparagement when people find out that they don't have a job outside the home. So I know one stay-at-home dad who told me that his in-laws keep asking, you know, when are you going to get a job? Or when he shows up at the at the playground with the strollers, you know, day after day, he's viewed with, with some suspicion. But we're not going to have equality in the workplace until we have equality in the home. Women need the same support at home that men have had for for decades. So I was uh, talking recently with the former president of the National At-Home Dads Network, and he told me his wife's career skyrocketed once she no longer had to worry about dinner or laundry or getting the kids to soccer games. He's been an at-home dad for over 10 years now, and still he feels stigma from people because he doesn't have a job outside of the house. He's perceived as unemployed rather than an individual who made the choice to stay at home and raise his kids. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's tough. It's tough for men. Have ha- Has there been any changes that you've seen to this over time at all? I mean, I'm sure this was you know, back in the 60s, it was probably super prominent. But even now, have are there changes to this at all? Right. So, you know, people will often tell me, hey, my next door neighbor is a stay-at-home dad. Or, you know, I know this couple and they, the wife works outside the home. They don't have kids, but the husband stays at home anyway. But we're not here to count the exceptions. Those are exceptions. We're here to change the norm. You know, I even had a young woman tell me that there is no way she could ever be with a man who stays at home. Yeah, at the same time, she was telling me that she wants to be supported if she chooses, in fact, to stay at home. (laughs) Yes, it's ironic. It's ironic. She recognizes the unfairness of what she's asking, but she refuses to change her position. She says she just can't. It's the way she thinks and it's what she believes. That is especially interesting to have somebody acknowledge that that it's unfair, but I mean, because that's usually the best opportunity to learn, right? I guess at that point, it's just uh, <laughs> a work in progress. I guess you've at least you've admitted it at that point, I guess. But, you know, the the other thing about that is I was reading an article a few weeks ago, I think, about... Uh, similar situations, kind of the modern way of relationships and marriage, I think is what it was, and and even people's decisions to have families and how that's shifted. And um, it touched on this aspect of women 
uh, or I guess men feeling this immense pressure to stay working because of exactly this point that you said. There are a lot of women out there who everything else could be totally fine in the relationship, but if the guy gets laid off or, you know, God forbid something happen, they leave them. Um, and so recognizing how much pressure that that puts on men um, and kind of the reinforcement of the cycle was just really interesting. And there was there was all of these other uh, aspects to it that if I can find the article again, I'll, I'll have to share it. But um, it's, it, it really is surprising to, for me to hear things like that because, uh, you know, it just seems. Yeah, it, it seems inherently unfair because it is inherently unfair. Yeah. So we continue to expect men to be in the role of breadwinner. In fact, there's this interesting phenomenon called the marriage premium where, you know, during a job offer process, a man who is married may be offered more money because of the recognition that he has a family to take care of. For women, it's a marriage penalty where she may be offered less if she's married, particularly if she's married and has kids, because of the belief that she won't be able to be as dedicated to work because of her family responsibilities outside of work. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. So Which it's is inherently... also, it's also illegal, by the way, to do that. It is, and it's not done overtly, and it's not right. done purposely. It's, you know, unconscious and it's subtle and remarkably difficult to prove yeah. Which is one of the issues, one of the issues too. Yeah, this idea that men need to be in this breadwinner role and women are the ones who need to take the predominantly, the, you know, the childcare and family care role at home. This is something that is deeply embedded in our culture. So it's not just men who are, perpet, you know, perpetuating these, these beliefs. It's, you know, perpetrating these beliefs. It's women and men who are upholding these cultural norms. Right, right. And as with everything, it's it's not everybody in, in both in either direction, I guess. But yeah, it's definitely something to recognize. And so along these lines, um, how how do you think would be a good way for norms to shift to help with this? I'll tell you what I'd like to see is an accelerated shift where people are supported in their choices, regardless of whether they align with gender norms. So right now, gender norms play a huge role in what we expect from women and men. In fact, I had a friend tell me that she hates it when she boards a plane and the pilot is a woman because women are intrinsically less capable of flying a plane than men are, according to her. And this is someone, yeah, this is someone with a thriving career in IT. She is very, very smart. She's in a predominantly male field where she expects to have opportunities based on her capabilities and not based on her gender. And yet she writes off a female pilot without knowing anything about her. So, so, you know, this isn't unlike the young woman who said she could never marry a man who stays at home while... Yeah, she wants to be supported if she makes that choice, but she's not willing to support, you know, a man who makes the choice. Yeah, as a side note to this, I I wonder if any of this has to do with the environment that the women are used to, since you did mention um, in this last example that the the woman is in, in is in IT in a predominantly male field, and so while she recognizes that you know she would expect to have an equal opportunity. 
I guess going back to this unconscious bias, she she may not realize that she's just used to seeing men all around her so that then when she goes into a different situation, she feels less comfortable, even though she may not be consciously making that decision or I guess willingly making that decision. She's just used to that, I wonder. I think that's a great point. That's a really good point. You know, the recent manifesto from a Google employee suggesting that women are less capable of certain roles is another example Mm. of this. And these are not one-off examples. If you were to take an implicit association test, and that's a free online test you can take to uncover your own unconscious bias. Oh, good. Yeah, you just Google Project Implicit and the test comes up. It shows that most people associate women with the home and men with careers, or that they associate women with humanities and men with math. And these are examples of unconscious bias, even though there is a lot of data and research that shows no differences in intellect or ambition between people based on gender. So unconscious bias also works against men in the home, because many people assume that they're less capable as caregivers or nurturers. Hmm. Now, this is interesting to me because I know a lot of times people also argue based on biology, right? So aside from the fact that we are um, more advanced than we were back in the day <laughs> when we were just, you know, cavemen and women and things like that, um, I know a lot, of, a lot of times people still say, well, aren't there still some things about women and some things about men that they're just inherently better at? What do you think about that? Right. So like my friend says, are men better at flying planes than women? And are women better caregivers than men? You know, actually, there are some stereotypes that look pretty good on the surface. For example, the idea that women are better at collaborating and that men are better at risk taking. The problem is that some women, you know, they may be okay collaborators, but their real strength may be in risk taking. And it may be reversed for men. They may be fantastic collaborators and not that comfortable with risk, for example. But women in particular are penalized when they defy gender norms even slightly. Mm. For for example, we now know that women do negotiate for higher salaries. But we, and by we I mean both women and men, become uncomfortable when women ask for more because women are supposed to give, not ask. Mm. Yeah, so there's also research that shows that high-achieving women are told that they're too aggressive or strident in their performance reviews. Again, you know, we're uncomfortable with women who leave with, lead with decisiveness and directness because we expect them to be softer and less direct. So to go back to your question of relating this to, to biology, if you believe that women are biologically softer and less direct and less, you know, aggressive, then it could really lock us into this discomfort when we come across a woman who doesn't meet those what we consider biological expectations or when we come across a man who doesn't meet those expectations. But I'd argue if we look past these gender beliefs, we will see a greater range of abilities in all people. Yeah, that's just what I was going to say. At the end of the day, whether you believe the biology side of the equation or not, there are always people who don't fit that, and uh, we need to work toward being more accepting of that than not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so how can we do that better, then? What does inclusive behavior look like? So that's another 
you know, it's another great question. So ultimately, being inclusive means not excluding people based on gender, race, or other attributes that have nothing to do with job performance. So what we need to do is include more women at the leadership table, get past our unconscious biases, become aware of them, have the courage to face them and be honest that we have them. All of us have unconscious biases. Invite women to the leadership table and invite men into the home. We really need to achieve that balance. But we can't do that unless we start recognizing people as individuals, which we cannot do as long as we're looking at them through a gendered lens. So can I give you an example? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so there is this experiment out of Stanford where two resumes were circulated to presumably fill the job of a lab manager. One resume belonged to Jennifer and the other to John. Ultimately, John had the stronger resume with more relevant qualifications, according to the reviewers. So he was offered the job. Well, the kicker is that both resumes were identical with only the name changed. But people, women and men alike, were more likely to read a male resume as more qualified. So this is a good example of confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. We see, yeah, we see what we want to see. Right. So I think ultimately every organization should define a list of inclusive behaviors that they expect from their employees. You see a lot of organizations saying we want to be inclusive, but not many have really defined well or articulated exactly what does that mean? What does inclusive behavior look like? They need to be clear about that as well as what exclusion looks like. And I think leaders in particular should be held accountable for those behaviors. Yeah, that's a good point because I think people might say these words and assume that everybody has the same definition, but that might not necessarily be the case. Right. Um, So then in terms of achieving both gender equality and then let's say equity also, what can organizations do? You know, there's a lot. There's a lot that can be done. And uh, everything takes effort, it takes dedication, and it takes time. So, for example, blinding incoming resumes is a really great start. So you remove the names from resumes coming in the door, and you assign a number. That way you avoid the Jennifer and John trap. So it allows you to fully see the qualifications in front of you instead of filtering them through a gendered lens. And by the way, this is a great strategy for bringing in more minority talent as well, because many resumes with foreign-sounding names or even African-American-sounding names are eliminated right at the get-go based on the name alone. So that's- Yeah, I, that just reminded me. I want to say that somebody actually as an individual did their own experiment with something like that where they they changed their name to something just more generic, if you will, and saw a difference based on that. So that's really interesting. And I also wanted to ask you, I know that there are some people um, these days who are also putting their picture on their resume. So in terms of protecting ourselves from that kind of bias, I don't know how you feel about that. You know, it's. I think the best thing that you can do is train your recruiters on unconscious bias and blind the resumes coming in. Yeah. And equip your yeah equip hiring managers with the right tools and be more diligent in the way talent assessments are done. You know, removing the pictures is tough. You know, here you have LinkedIn, and we right, know that. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
profiles with pictures on them, you know, get more views and your network better? So it's a it's a tough question. Let me give you some other examples, though, if we have a little bit more time. Yeah. Do we have a few more minutes? Yeah, yeah. I think something else super powerful is to stop asking for salary history. In fact, it's already illegal in several states to ask, yep. and it's going to be illegal in several more starting in 2018. So this is based on the fact that women earn less than men because of unconscious bias, and offering the next salary based on the last one just perpetuates that gap. And another thing, and we talked about this already, organizations, I think it's really important to start training recruiters and leaders on unconscious bias and, and ways to mitigate the impact of bias. And above all, of course, ensure that people of all genders, so male, female, and anyone who doesn't necessarily fit that binary definition, that everyone has equal access to paternal leave, parental leave or paternity leave. Of course. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it's one thing to make sure that we're aware and protecting ourselves, but you're right. Rather than having to change ourselves, we, we should try to change the system, if you will. That's what we're here to do. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little of both. Right. So when we started this conversation, we said that changes need to be made socially, organizationally, and individually. So there are questions of what can I do as an individual? I can become aware of my own unconscious bias. And sure. I can, yeah, come up with some mitigating strategies organizationally. I can make sure that the policies and procedures that I have in place are not inadvertently promoting structural bias. Socially, I can challenge gender norms and become more accepting of individuals who do not necessarily fit what I might expect from a woman or from a man. So we all have these expectations. I think it's just a question of becoming honest and courageous and uh, facing them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sangeeta. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add, but um, this was really, really great. Thank you very much. It's an you know honor to be a part of this podcast, and I appreciate appreciate the invitation. For all of our listeners who would like more information or to contact Sangeeta, please visit www.actioninclusion.org, follow her on Twitter at Sangeeta Insight, or you can email her at skasturi at actioninclusion.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and of course, like, comment, rate, and share. Thanks for listening.